So you have the equivalent of that um, in the calendar. The God and the, and the, and the sages crafted a, a calendar for us where we're just we're surfing through the entire year. There's a holiday and then there's another holiday and then there's another sometimes it's a fast, sometimes it's it's this amazing rhythm over the course of the entire year where you're just like you're surfing the year. And you're there's always something new to discover and everything like that. One of the joys of learning with Reb Shlomo over the years is that whatever that that point in the year was, he would always say, whatever it was, let's say it was Lagba Omer, he would go, okay, so Lagba Omer is absolutely the holiest day of the entire year, right? And then you'd get to whatever the next day was. Let's say it's Tubab. Okay, Tubab is absolutely 100% the holiest day of the entire year. And every day was, a, everything was, a, and then by the time he finished, you were like, yeah, it was obvious. Of course it's the holiest day of the year. Until the next holiest day of the year. You know, but it actually is true. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. Everything has such profound depth and meaning. And what a way to go through life. What an amazing way to go through life. So let's go a little bit deeper. You know, I'll I just tell you some, just an interesting thing about Tuba'ab, which I, I didn't know. I learned it from, from the Chidush Rim. He says that... Um, Every, you know, every year during the 40 years in the desert, the, there, there was this decree that the generation um, that listened to the bad report of the spies would die out in the desert. And why was that? Just, just a, such a major point, we have to go over it again. Is because the Jewish people said God basically wants to bring us into Israel in order to wipe us out, in order to kill us. Because God hates us. And God said, hey, you know, I, I can't do business with this generation. It's as simple as that. If you actually think that I hate you and that I mean harm for you, then it, this is a non-starter. You, 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 this generation has to kind of finish off its business in the desert, and that's what it is. It's, it's so essential that we understand that God is good, and that's behind everything. And I just want to take a, another moment to try to explain that, because... This is such a central problem in our generation, um, probably for generations. You know, I heard from Rabbi Green one time. He said, if you were to go up to God at any moment and ask him, how are you doing, right? He would always say the, exactly the same thing. Great, I'm doing great. <laughs> God is always doing great. God is in a great mood. He's doing great. <laughs> so if you... Then, but you might say, hey, wait a second, you know, you know, I'm going to open up like a lot of different places in the Torah. I'm going to show you. Right here it says, these are God's own words. And God was angry. <laughs> right? <laughs> things like that. Many occasions. You can point to things like that. So what are you telling me God's in a great mood? Right here it says he's angry. So how, how do you explain that? So I'm going to give you the explanation for it. And it's a very important explanation. So there's a Rambam. Now, let me just explain this. The Gomorrah says that anger is like, anger is a bummer, basically. I don't know if the Gomorrah uses that terminology, but, but that's what they mean. And, and they, they, they say actually something even deeper than that. They say that anger is akin to avodah to idol worship. So you say, well, wait a second, okay, I, I get that you don't like anger, but idol worship? Like, idol worship's like the worst possible offense. Like, how are you equating the two? 
So if you just work it out, there's actually a very strong logic to it, which is that, you see, when I'm, let's say, I, let's say someone does something, and we'll get to the other person's responsibility in a moment, but just for now, let's say someone does something. I get very, very angry at them. How could you do this to me? Right? So what I'm doing is I'm according them a power that they don't have. I'm making them into an independent power, separate from God. Okay, now, because everything comes from God. Now, you have to, now, now, does that mean that that person, therefore, gets to do terrible things to me? And then I, that person has no responsibility? No, absolutely not. That person bears responsibility for their action, 100%. However, if a person only sees it as coming from that person and doesn't understand the wider picture that everything comes from God, then they're missing a very important point. You see, that's why Judaism is very, very sophisticated. You have to understand we're dealing with, we've got a this world account, but then we have to take a step back and have a macro account. And we have to factor in God. And we have to say, okay, God, you run the world. Why did that happen to me? Why did you want that to happen to me? So obviously I have a, a, a conversation with God about that event. That doesn't mean that that person escapes responsibility. It happened through that person. That person made a choice. So there's a separate account there. But if we just leave it at the relationship between me and the person who angered me, then that's idol worship. Because I'm not factoring in the fact that everything comes from God. Okay. So the Rambam says something very interesting. That's the Gomorrah. Here's the Rambam. Are you allowed to get mad at your workers? Let's say you have lazy workers. <laughs> right? Now, sometimes you've got to yell at your workers, like, because that's all that they listen to. You know? if, you're not, if you're not yelling at them, they're not working. Okay? So the Rambam says it's okay to yell at your workers. Listen carefully. You can put on an angry mask, but the anger can't be coming from your heart. You can wear a mask of anger to get the point across. You better work. I'm paying you. You better work. But the anger can't be coming from your heart. And one of the most amazing things that Reb Shlomo modeled was, and he would say it, that a person has to cleanse their hearts of anger. This is one of the biggest devotees, one of the biggest spiritual works that, that all of us have to do. You have to cleanse your heart of anger. Very, 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 very important. If you actually want to make spiritual progress, if you're actually interested in what the Torah is saying about being close to God, about, about making breakthroughs and things like that, this is one of the most important things, and it's, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And I know more than once, I've been in a room by myself, and I'm sharing this with you, where I started to become angry, and I say to myself over and over again, I say, David, not with anger, not with anger, not with anger, not with anger. You, you can be upset. doesn't mean don't be upset. doesn't mean don't be real. You can be upset, but not with anger. Not with anger. Rip Shoma told a story one time, one of my favorite stories, and unfortunately I don't remember the Rebbe, and the truth is I don't even remember the whole story. But I remember one scene from the story, and... 
you know, back in the day, people traveled through forests. Like, a lot of Hasidic stories involve forests. And the reason is because there were a lot of forests. <laughs> so, you know, these were real stories. And so, you know, that's what was around. So, so, so they're part of these stories. So a forest at night, I mean, even in the daytime probably, but a forest at night could, could be a very dangerous place. There's wild animals, there's thieves, robbers, murderers hanging out in the forest. So um, the story goes that this, this Rebbe went with some Hasidim in this, in this carriage and they're, in their, and, and they're going through the forest at night. And this pack of wolves comes and the horse, the horse or the horses, I don't know what it was, gets spooked. And they don't want to move. They're afraid of the wolf. And there's like a pack of wolves. And these wolves can pounce on you and they can tear you apart. You know, that's death right there. So the Rebbe, the Rebbe gets out of the carriage and he, he starts to unbutton his shirt. And he opens up his shirt, like where his heart is. And I remember Reb Shlomo said, from here you see that wolves have a Rebbe. Because, you know, in English we call it the leader of the pack. But, you know, Reb Shlomo, the way he phrased it, he said that that's their Rebbe, right? So the leader of the pack, the head wolf, came up and he put his nose to the chest of the Rebbe. And then all the wolves went away. And the Rebbe, the Hasidim asked, and the Rebbe explained, the wolf was checking to see, he was smelling, to see if I had any anger in my heart. And if I did, they would have attacked. But he saw that, so to speak, I'm on the level. And they went away. So, so let me get back to the, remember, let's remember what the question is. We're answering a question right now, which is, on the one hand, you're telling me God's always in a great mood. And on the other hand, I can point to so many places where it says God is angry. So what I'm telling you is the following. God puts on a mask of anger. Right? Like the Rambam says. You can have a mask of anger. But inside, inside there, there's no anger. So sometimes we do certain things which require some sort of reaction from God. Sometimes it's from our present life. Sometimes it's a fixing for one of our past lives. Sometimes it's a lesson that we need for our future. Sometimes it manifests itself as something that's very, very negative, And then we find out that it was actually very positive. So it wasn't even bad, but in the moment it feels bad. But when these things come down... They just, they, this is just a mask of God's anger. And, it, and it's happening from a standpoint of love. My, my son, young son, was once, we were walking home from services, it was Rosh Hashanah. I don't know how old he was, maybe five, six, something like this. He fell on his face on the concrete and he cut his uh, eyebrow. And even though it wasn't such a large cut, if you cut your eyebrow kind of deeply, you have blood streaming all over your face. So 
it looks terrible. I mean, it looks really terrible. It's not so bad, but it, the way it looks, it's like horror movie shocking, you know? So we took him and he got, um, he got stitches. And, and I watched this and I still, I can picture it as I'm saying it. He's lying on the table and he didn't cry, which was like this amazing thing. And the doctor is like, it's like with your sewing. I don't know if you ever saw stitches made. It's like really like you're sewing like a garment, like a hole in a garment. He's sewing his eyelid, his, his eyebrow. And, and there, there's my son, my young boy, just lying on his back, just kind of looking at the ceiling as he's sewing his eyebrow. So this is God and us. I mean, the, the thing is, is that sometimes something comes down and it feels kind of, feels painful or it feels harsh or whatever it is, but this is, this is a fixing. This is coming from a place of love. This is healing us, whatever it is. And we, none of us should need it. None of us should need it. But what, but what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is it's not coming from a place of anger. That, 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 that's the point that's being made over here. So, so let's keep on going. So Antuba'av, Antuba'av, Antishabav during the 40 years in the desert, and remember that happened because we thought God hates us, right? Which is just, this is, we, we, we just can't have this attitude. We cannot have this attitude. So, so over the 40 years, once, once a year on Antishabav, the people would die. Part of that generation would die. And then seven days later, they would get up from their Shiva on Tuba'av. So Tuba'av was the end of Shiva every single year. You see, so, so the happiness of Tuba'av was already implanted like, like very strongly in the desert. And then people stopped dying altogether on Tuba'av. And then we could move forward and enter into the land. So, we're going to get to the free gifts still, but I just want to spend a little bit more time on Tuba'av. Tuba'av is a very important demarcation in the year. It's a, it's, a, it's a turning point in the year. Because one of the famous verses of the Torah, it says, what does God want from you? And he uses what in Hebrew is ma. What, what does God want from you? Moshe asks. And then Siva Shalom says, Ma is Gamatria 45. It's the numerical equivalent of 45. There's 45 days from Tuba'av to Rosh Hashanah. So he says he wants those 45 days. Right? So, so now, once Tuba'av happens, we're shifting toward the new year. Now we're getting ready for the new year. And of course on Rosh Hashanah, the decree right, for the new year comes down. What our life for over the next year is coming down. So it's very, very important to utilize these days very productively to make a case for ourselves that we deserve a good year. Okay? So, so we're going... You see, so I want to say the following. It's like the year starts in, on the first day of Tishrei, on Rosh Hashanah, and it's going on some level all the way to Tuba'av, But it's sort of like um, it's sort of like running out of steam, you know. In other words, like it's sort of like you have the blast of the new light, but already by Tubav we're preparing for the next year, so it's kind of rolling to a close. So 
So, so just factoring in what we just learned, what I want to say is, by Tuba Av, the year stops dying, right? Because all the deaths stopped on Tuba Av. So on Tuba Av, the energy of the year stops winding down, and now we're getting revved up to start supercharging the year that's about to come. So, so over the next few weeks, we'll go into it more. I mean, I, I want to get into this idea of free gifts. So Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, see, uh, just let's make a larger point before we get into it. Something we've talked about over the years, but it's just, to me, it's such a fascinating point. You know, I'm a, I, I, I'm a writer, so I sort of, I guess I wouldn't say I tell stories for a living, but, you know, that sounds a little overwrought, but, I mean, I sort of do. So, um, so if you were to ask me, what is the main storyline of the five books, right? Because that's how we approach script writing. You have your main storyline, your A story, your B story, C story, sometimes you have a, a D runner. But what, what's the A story of the, of the five books of the Torah? So it seems, to me anyway, pretty straightforward. It's the story of the Jewish people entering the land of Israel. I, I think that's not a very controversial thing to say. It seems pretty clear that that's the story. So, and we know that the five books contains as, as a microcosm for everything in, in, in the universe. So if the story of the five books is the Jewish people entering into the land of Israel, don't you find it striking that by the end of the fifth book, the Jewish people don't get into the land of Israel? Isn't that interesting? There's no closure. There's no closure. And we could make a whole hour talk out of it. I, I have in the past. <laughs> but I just want to make the point very succinctly, which is it's because our journey never ends. Right? Because we believe very strongly in immortality. There's life inside the body followed by life outside the body. Life doesn't stop. It transitions, but it doesn't stop. You have life inside the body, followed immediately by life outside the body. Life doesn't stop. The journey of the soul doesn't end. God is infinite. We are an aspect of God. So the soul is infinite, but one of the far-out concepts is there's levels of infinity. There are greater infinities. So God is beyond infinity. He's not even the greatest infinity. Because if you say God is the greatest infinity, you've defined him. And God is outside of every single definition. So God is beyond infinities, right? But then you have subsets of infinities within it, right? Remember, like, just if you want to have a very clear math example, like, let's say pi, for instance, but there are zillions of examples of this. Pi is... 3.14159 and then it keeps on going and it doesn't stop. And they've done computer programs because they've said, hey, at a certain point it probably repeats. So let's just keep on running pi till we see that it repeats. It doesn't repeat. And they've run it into the millions of digits and it never repeats. Okay? 
By the way, I'll just tell you an aside. I went in New York City, I went to a, a school called Bronx Science, Bronx High School of Science. And here was the team for the, here was the cheer for the math team. Okay? <laughs> sine, cosine, cosine, sine, 3.14159, go science! <laughs> so, anyway, what that tells you is between the numbers 3 and 4, because this is 3.14159, right? Between the numbers 3 and 4, you have it infinity. But there are many, many examples of that. Probably between 0 and 1. 1 and 2. 2 and 3. And probably many examples between the digits. So you see that this concept in, of infinity, like if I were a kid and you asked me, oh, how do you define infinity? I would say, well, you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and you keep on going, and that's infinity. Right? But you see, the, the concept of infinity is much more interesting than that. You have levels of infinity. And God, of course, is beyond infinity. And we are a subset of God's infinity, which means that the journey of the soul never ends. <laughs> because after we leave our body and continue to live outside of our body, it also goes on and 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 on. The travels of the soul never stop. It's very exciting. It's very exciting because you're going through some amazing neighborhoods. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? And remember, you're, we believe, a very important point that a lot of people don't understand is that we believe that the soul, after it leaves the body, still has self-consciousness. See, we're not just some aspect of God merging into the great oneness. You're still you. You're still you. So that, that's amazing. You, you get to experience it as, as you. Right? You're a more refined version of yourself. But you're still you. So that's amazing. That's amazing. That's why we want to get life right in this world. Because basically, what we transact in this world is what we have for the rest of eternity. That's, that's why this world is so important. Right? We can't say, okay, when I'm in heaven, I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. It doesn't... You're still traveling. You still have merits. You're still traveling through. But you know what I mean? It's like, like what would it be like to experience the world's greatest thrill ride from the front seat with an unobstructed view of the windows? I mean, these are all horrible visualizations. But... But, but it's real. It's real. Imagine there's 613 mitzvahs and 613 different vessels. Well, you're carrying, you're going to be able to receive the light in the vessels that you made in this world through the observance of, of those mitzvahs. And the more vessels that you have, the more mitzvahs that you kept, especially the giant ones, the, the, the foundational ones like Shabbos. These are, you know, these things are going to be able to receive levels of light and you'll be able to receive levels of perception in the next world for eternity that, that are beyond. So not everyone has the same view of, you know, from this eternal ride, basically. And it's merit-based. 
it's merit-based, and it's based on the choices that we make in this world. So it's, it's, worth, it's worth considering, because, you know, a lot of times it's like, we think, oh, why do I have to do this, and why do I have to do that? Again, Rabbi Green told, like, a fantastic story. He said that when he was, um, when he was a little boy in, in Baltimore, um, his grandmother came, and it was like a very, very hot day in the summer. And she, she took him, and, 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 and it's sort of like, where are we going, you know? And she says, well, first, first we have to go to this store. And he's like, uh, you know, this, she's running errands, and it's so hot, you know? And then we went to that store, and it's like, oh, you're killing me, you know? And it's like, and then we went to that store, and we had to wait on that line, and it's so hot. And, I, and then we took a long bus ride, and it's like, oh... And then I saw that she was taking me like from this incredible picnic and all the stores that we had gone to were just like treats that we could have so that we could sit and relax and enjoy. And he couldn't believe that this entire thing, that whole journey was, was for him, you know? And, and that he was, it was all designed, just that he was the beneficiary of the entire thing. You know, and we go through life and we think, oh, God wants me to do this and God wants me to do that. But when you understand that you're building vessels that you are going to be the direct beneficiary of, that this is an act of love where God is giving you the opportunity to essentially, like, furnish your, this, this like, um, eternal way out road trip Right then, it's sort of like, thank you, God. Thank you. you mean now I can buy a supercharged carburetor, and now this one's going to allow me to go like you know, you know, ten times the light speed of ah. Okay. So, so with that in mind, let's get back to this idea of free gifts. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu has been told that basically his, maybe his greatest dream, which is to be able to lead the people into the land of Israel. That's the closure we're talking about on a different level, right? That he's not getting that, right? Like, Moshe is the greatest person that's ever lived. And by the way, also the humblest person who ever lived. And that's not just two things on his resume. They have everything to do with each other. Because he was the greatest person who ever lived and didn't take credit for it, that's what made him the humblest person that ever lived. In other words, there's a cause and effect there. It's not just two attributes that he had. So, so Moshe's, Moshe keeps on praying. I, please, God, let me into the land of Israel. Please, please, please. Right? So... The, the word for his praying, this is where this uh, Parsha begins. It's called Parsha's V.S. Chanan. V.S. Chanan is a Hebrew word which means, and he prayed, meaning Moshe prayed. And the sages see something very special. They say, V.S. Chanan doesn't just say that he prayed, but it's telling you more than that. Because the numerical equivalent of the word V.S. Chanan is 515. And it's telling you that he prayed 515 times to get into the land of Israel. And I believe it's the Vilna Gon who says that he prayed 515 
different prayers. See, it's very important that when you're praying for something, the, the, the rabbis teach that you, you shouldn't make it do it by rote. In other words, we sometimes it takes a long time for a prayer to get answered. You know, God knows best. So we settle into a habit of how we phrase it. And it's not really meaningful for us anymore. So this is just a good thing to know, that to challenge yourself, that whatever you're praying for, try to pray for it in a new way each time. That, that's important, because that, that keeps it alive, and it, it's, it, it also increases your relationship with God. So, there's something very, very interesting that happens. God says, listen, don't pray anymore. Because if you pray one more time, I have to let you in. According to the Mita, the attribute of justice, if you pray one more time, you, I have to let you in. And I'm telling you right now, it's not going to be the best thing for the Jewish people if you come in right now. Because basically the Jewish people weren't ready for it yet. And it just, okay, it's, it's complicated. But it wasn't the right time. And so Moshe, who wants the best for the Jewish people, the whole world, says, okay, you know what? I won't pray that extra prayer. And the rabbis teach that Moshe asked to be allowed to go into the land of Israel as a free gift. And the sages remark on this, like, how incredible is this that Moshe Rabbeinu, who has the most merits of anyone in history, is asking this thing from God, not based on anything that he did, but just based on the fact that God just give it to me as a free gift. You know, I, I, it's a whole long story. I, I, I'm not going to go into it, but last week um, I was at uh, Comic-Con in San Diego, and it's a, it's a whole thing, and anyway, I was, I, I was on this panel down there, and I was, I was hoping that um, it wasn't going to be on Shabbos so that I could do the panel, and then, you know, for months I'm waiting to find out, like, when's the panel going to be, and they finally tell us the panel's going to be not on Shabbos, and I was like, okay, great. They said it's going to end at 4.15 Arab Shabbos. <laughs> right before Shabbos. Which is, would not be a big deal, except that that was Shabbos Tishabov, and I was going to be down there alone, and there was no way to get back on time, right, if I took the car or if I took the train. And so I, I just didn't want to be down there alone, and I didn't want to be down there over Tishabov, and it just, it was really bugging me. And then all of a sudden, during davening, after like wrestling with this for a couple of weeks, it hits me, you can fly, you can fly, you take a plane. So I looked into the times to see if the times worked out, and there was one flight that was getting in too close for comfort vis-a-vis -vis Shabbos, and I really was not happy about that, you know. It could work, but there was a chance that it couldn't work, and I just didn't want to risk it. And then there was another flight that, le that left at left at 4.55 p.m. Now, my 
panel finished at 4.15. So it's basically impossible to make that flight. Anyway, without going into all the details, I left the hotel at 4.25 and I made the flight. And it was just incredible. It's a whole long story. If it had been another day, we would have spent half the day talking about this story. But the reason why I'm bringing it up right now is because I got to one point and where I, I have the TSA pre-check and I showed it to the person and which was going to allow me to make up some time. I, I was told as soon as the car pulled up to the airport that I had missed the flight. I was told already that I had missed the flight. But I kept on going. And then when there was a long line for, sec for security check-in TSA, but the other line allowed me to just go right through it. And I showed my, the pass with, on my phone, and the guard says, you, you don't have TSA pre-check. And I said, no, I do. And she says, she's pointing to the phone, she goes, no, you don't. Somehow it didn't make it onto the ticket. And I said, I, I'm a Sabbath observer. If, if I don't make this flight, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make Shabbos. And she looked at me, she, this is like a woman made out of concrete. She said, sir, you don't have TSA pre-check. And I was like, okay, there's no talking to this woman. This is not, I'm not going to get anywhere with her. And at that moment, I said to myself, okay, you missed the flight. And then I thought, but maybe Hashem wants to give it to me as a gift. And I kept on going and I made the flight. See, a lot of times we feel like, you know what, I don't have merit. I don't have merit. And you know what the truth is? It may be true. You may not have merit. <laughs> it may not be a joke. You may not have merit. But maybe Hashem wants to give it to you as a gift. So, so anyway, there's this massive treasure house of free gifts in heaven. So the Ger Rebbe asks the question that everybody asks. So where are my free gifts? <laughs> right? You're telling me there's a giant storehouse of free gifts? Where's my free gift? And listen to what he says, something unbelievable. He says, you know why the people aren't getting free gifts? Because everyone's walking around feeling like they deserve it. <laughs> and since everybody feels like they deserve it, then it can't be a free gift because they feel like they deserve it. This is very strong. This is very, very strong. And you have to have the right ears to hear what I'm about to say. Because if you have the wrong ears, it's going to sound like I'm saying something negative, And I promise you I'm not saying anything negative right now. But what do we deserve? <laughs> I mean... Who am I, who are you compared to Moshe Rabbeinu? And Moshe Rabbeinu, who did more than we do in a hundred thousand lifetimes, says, I don't deserve it. Bless you. So what, what you know, R Rabbi Green used to say, like, y you, you belong to you? You belong to, you own you? 
Where, where's, where's the receipt for your nose? Where's the receipt for your eyes? You got your eyes? You own your eyes? Let me see the receipt. Let me see where you purchased them. You own your heart? Let me see the receipt for your heart. Where did you get your heart? We, we start with a certain incorrect premise, which is, I am mine. I belong to me. My stuff is my stuff. And okay, let's proceed from there. But who says any of that is true? And now here's the beautiful part. If a person really understands that everything is a gift, then all of a sudden the treasure house for free gifts is open. (laughs) Because I know I don't deserve anything. So now that I know that I don't deserve anything, now I can receive everything as a free gift. So it's a very ironic twist that by understanding that you're not deserving, you actually open yourself up to receiving. So I want to connect this. I want to go deeper now. I want to connect this to... See, because I want to show you a pattern that's, that, that's in Torah right now. And if you can understand what I'm saying right now, this is like we can like really sort of shoot up some levels right now. Okay? I want to put this together with, it's going to sound like a separate thought, but you're going to see how it's the same thought. So, we had not so long ago um, Parsha's Chukas, which talked about the Paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer, which cleansed from death. And, and it says, Vizos Chukas HaTorah. This is the Chok. A Chok is something that you'll never understand rationally. Okay? That doesn't mean that it's irrational. It means it's super rational. Let me just explain, make sure that everyone understands that point. There's only, remember, God is infinite. He's beyond infinite. We're finite, even though we're an aspect of his infinity. Still, relative to God, we're finite. Okay? That means that we can't know everything. Because only God knows everything. So unless you're God, you can't know everything. So since we're not God, we can't know everything. So that means that there's a ceiling on what it is that we're going to be able to know. But there's knowledge that exists beyond what we know. So I would call that super rational. It's rational, but it's beyond our rational level of understanding. Super means above, right? Not irrational, not because I don't understand it, therefore it doesn't make sense. It makes sense. It's just super rational. It's beyond my ability to comprehend. So, a chok is that category of mitzvahs and probably the most famous chok is shotness. You can't have a garment that has wool and linen in it. Why? It's a chok. It makes sense. We don't understand it, but it makes sense. It's beyond our 
ability to understand. It makes sense, we just don't understand it. So, in talking about the greatest chok in the entire Torah, the ashes of the red heifer, why was that such a great chok? Because these ashes purified someone who came into contact with the dead and experienced the um, spiritual impurity that comes from contact with the dead, tumas mes. But the people who prepared the ashes became spiritually impure. So you're telling me that this thing is like a great cleanser, but the people who make it become impure. How do those two things go together? Nobody knows. Says Moshe at the very end of his life, knew. But King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, the wisest person ever, never figured it out. It's the ultimate Torah riddle. Okay? So the Pasuk says, the verse says, Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the chok, meaning the fundamental chok of the Torah. But the rabbis say something deeper than that. They say, no, zos chukas Torah means that every mitzvah in the entire Torah is a chok. You think you understand any mitzvah in the Torah? They're all beyond your rational understanding. They're all super rational. You can never understand it. Any mitzvah in the Torah, in the realest way. Okay. So now we're going to start to put these two things together. If I understand that I'm not deserving of anything, truly, right? Not because I'm a bad person. All of us are doing great things all the time. But we're talking deeper than that. Like, how do we deserve anything, right? Right? That it's beyond. It's beyond. It's coming from a place that's from beyond. And the Torah itself is coming from a place, all the mitzvahs are coming from this super rational place, from a place that's beyond, beyond, beyond. You see, what happened was, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, right, what we did was, we put this ceiling, we put this separation between our mortal intelligence and the divine intelligence. We made a separation between us and God. Now all of a sudden there was this thing called good and bad. Right? We, we put a ceiling on our das. We put a ceiling on what we could know. Because before our, our intelligence was fused with the divine intelligence. Now all of a sudden it's like there was like heaven and earth in like the material and the spiritual in separate realms. And what does it say? When we ate from the tree of knowledge, we brought death into the world. See? Because there's a certain death in thinking that you know everything. Because you cut... What is death? Death is something that cuts something short. If you think you fully understand a topic and you don't, you've cut your knowledge of that topic short. There's a death that enters into your relationship with that material. So all of a sudden we think we know. And that's a level of death. But if you know that you'll never know, if you know that you'll never know, if you know that every single mitzvah is a chok, you can repair that connection that got cut off. Because you understand that there's endless, endless knowings above knowledge. 
And that's the fixing of the tree of knowledge. And this is very much tied to this idea of understanding that we don't deserve anything, that everything is a free gift. See, if you go through life in this place of holy unknowing, right, then you've leapfrogged over the tree of knowledge. And you're back to this divine space where everything is infinite again, even amidst our mortality. Now for some questions and answers. What, okay, so, if everything in Ghanaian was a free gift, okay, before... No, everything in Ghanaian was not a free gift. It said that we were given two mitzvahs to work and guard the garden. And they say those two mitzvahs were represented in a microcosm form, the positive commandments of the Torah and the negative commandments of the Torah. So in those two mitzvahs, to work and guard the garden, we had all 613 mitzvahs. So this is a very important point. I I repeat this a lot because you have to understand that Gan Eden was not, the Garden of Eden was not a cosmic spot. It was a work session. It was a work session. The whole world was designed to be a work session. It just happens to be that we were supposed to finish our work on the sixth day and then go right into the seventh day, which would have been the completion of the world. Yeah, but but I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but let's not underestimate the level of the test of what it was that Adam and Chava went through with the snake. It was enormous. People don't fully understand how giant a test it was. It was giant. It was giant. Basically, what they were, what they had to figure out were, are they the only power in the universe, or are there multiple powers in the universe? And the snake is telling them, like, why did the snake, this is from Reb Shlomo, why did the snake talk to Eve alone and not Adam? Why was it a one-on-one with Adam and Eve, with the snake and Eve? Right? So, so what Reb Shlomo says is an amazing chiddush. He says, women are capable of giving birth. Men aren't. So women know what it means to be a creator. So women were much more susceptible to the argument that we're also God. And that there are multiple powers. Very interesting insight. But anyway, you say we have to work harder. I guess we do. I guess we do in certain respects, absolutely. But, so I'm agreeing with you, but I, I, I also don't want to dismiss the, how hard the test was for Adam and Chaba. that we're told that we can't understand like the paraduma the ashes of the red heifer you're supposed to try to figure out 
what it means. There's enormous, there's rivers, rivers of ink that have been written on trying to explain this thing that we're told that we're never going to understand. So the nature of Talmud Torah, of Torah study, is you're trying to constantly figure out the reasons for absolutely everything, while simultaneously knowing on the deepest level you're never going to know. But you're not supposed to be try any less hard or be any less motivated to try to figure it out. And it's not a... Um, it's not like, uh, God forbid, like, okay, let's take this sand pile over here and put it over there. Now move it from over there and put it over there. It's not a pointless task. The, just the delving in the sort of the ectoplasm, so to speak, of divinity, which is Torah study, you're, you grow and you become refined and you become closer to God and the world receives more light. So there's, it's a tremendously productive act trying to figure out these things. It's just that they're endlessly deep. Do, do you understand? Yeah. It's like, it's not, so just to give you some imagery, it's not like trying to take a plastic fork and dig a hole in a diamond. You're never going to scratch the surface of the diamond. It's digging an endless hole, but you're going deeper and deeper and deeper in the earth, and then through the earth, and then into outer space, and then onto Venus, and then through Venus. You, you never stop. You're making progress. It's just endlessly deep. Yeah. Uh, first of all, David, thank you for, for your class. It's, oh. like, it's amazing. Yeah, that, uh, it's a ma massive perspective shift. I come in here, and through, through the course of the class, I can feel my, my mind starting to open up, open up, and the sense of wonder I have begins to open up again. I feel there's a closeness to Hashem that then comes in because of that. You know, that openness and wonder that you, that you help facilitate. Okay. Torah, Torah, Torah. I mean, yeah. thank, yeah. you, thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, so I have a question that I don't know how, that's how to phrase it. Um, but it has to do with a kind of sadness and confusion, yeah. I guess. Yes. That, um, you know, Hashem is sending His messengers. Everyone's essentially a messenger. Everything's coming from God. Um, and sometimes things get very confusing. People are acting right. in ways you're like, why is person acting right. this way? Right. And, and you stop and you try to to talk to Hashem in an authentic yeah. way, yes. and I know what I'm doing, he both to do it. Uh, you know, Hashem doesn't sit down and answer me like, oh, well, you know, this right. is the right. Like, very often there's these, these silences and this, this, this lack of, I guess, specific response. So, I love what you said at the end, talking about this holy kind of the, um, you know, having our dot be this, almost this like platform where you actually need to break past that and this holy unknowing being like, excited about this like not knowing that everything is actually you know but how do you I guess how does one maintain that level of openness because what happens to me at least is that my brain reminds me of a story and the story comes back and then it creates feelings in my body which creates another feedback loop which strengthens that story so that confusion and sadness begins to like constrict my consciousness um, and, um, and I love the, you know, the concept of this breakthrough of knowledge, it's hard yes. to maintain it sometimes. So, okay, so what I would say just is, one is, there is no substitute for regular Torah study. There is no substitute. It's got to be, if you want to be serious, it has to be every day. And it doesn't even have to be for a long time every day. It just has to be for every day. It has to be. Even, again, if it's five minutes, honestly, you know, there are certain books where, with short Torahs in them, where you learn a little bit and it just will it just reopens you up you know it's just very very important that's that's one thing the next thing is is that 
as you're talking about your feedback loop, you know, a person has to become increasingly sensitized to their own internal process. So if you start to think of a, um, a sad event in your life or something like that, then you have to be aware as you're thinking about it, and then you have to positively redirect those thoughts in the moment. In the moment. In other words, you've already identified a process. So that's a, that's a big breakthrough in, sort of, in, in terms of self-discovery. That, that's, that's enormously important. Now you have to take the next step of sort of being more aware when it's happening to you in real time, and then you have to be on top of the process, and you have to have a conversation with, with God or with yourself or, or whatever it is that's going to redirect that energy so that it doesn't have a chance to pummel you and trap you in the moment. And that in itself is a process, by the way. Becoming um, sort of like alert to as it's happening. Right? So I'll tell you just one story. And this is also a, um, an advertisement for just learning a tiny bit each day. Okay? And there's a bagel store on the other side of town. Um, I think it's called... Uh, it's called the Brea Bagels, but it's not on the Brea. <laughs> so, <laughs> it takes me a while to remember the name. It's on Poinsettia, actually. So, and they have some Sfarim. They have some Jewish books there, right? So I'm waiting online, and I thought to myself, this was years ago. I thought, so why should I wait online and do nothing? I see there's a Torah book over there. I'll, I'll, I'll learn Torah while I'm waiting online. So I grab a, a Torah book. It was a Tanya. And I, I open it up at some random page and I just start reading. And it was so good. It was, it was so good. It said um, that, that, I'm paraphrasing, but basically what it said was, you see, the Yetzirah, the, the, the negative inclination, the, the one that's trying to make us depressed and sad and rebellious all the time and things like this, it's an, it's an angel of God. But... Because it's an angel of God, it knows who God is, right? So, so the Balatanya was saying that that something that you can say to the Yetzirah, right? When the Yetzirah is telling you apicorsis, when it's telling you heresy, things that aren't true, you say to the angel, you don't even believe this. Why should I believe this? <laughs> Because it knows the truth. <laughs> so this is an example of just one technique of something that you, you can have a whole storehouse of techniques when you, when you recognize this impulse starting to come to you to try to pull you down. You don't even believe that. Why should I believe that? <laughs>